now recording. Cool. Um, okay, so today we're going to round off the first of Moses's three major homilies throughout Deuteronomy. As a, if you remember, as I said, uh, he'll have about three main homilies. His first one we're about to finish off right now today. And we're going to dive into the second one in which he's going to start expanding on the Decalogue. Okay, he's going to start expanding on the Ten Commandments. So uh, bear in mind that he's going to be going over, restating um, different stories that have happened. So starting in, in chapter 5, he's going to be going over the story of them receiving the Decalogue. And then he's going to restate them and give slight alterations. And so we're going to see this continuation of the story. Um, and it's going to continue on for like 11 chapters where he's going to be expounding upon the, um, the Ten Commandments. And it's going to feel a lot like, you know, back when we were in Leviticus or Numbers, these different rules. But bear in mind that this is a homily, okay? Um, it, it, it adds a different dimension to everything. So whenever you're ready, uh, Maxwell, feel free to read. Reading the book of uh, Deuteronomy, chapter 4 and 5. Moses urges Israel to be obedient. Then Moses said to the people, Obey all the laws that I am teaching you, and you will live and occupy the land which the Lord, the God of your ancestors, is giving you. Do not add anything to what I command you, and do not take anything away. Obey the commands of the Lord your God that I have given you. You yourselves saw what the Lord did on Mount Peor. He destroyed everyone who worshipped Baal there. But those of you who were faithful to the Lord your God are still alive today. I have taught you all the laws, as the Lord my God told me to do. Obey them in the lands that you are about to invade and occupy. Obey them faithfully, and this will show the people of other nations how wise you are. When they hear of all these laws, they will say, What wisdom and understanding this great nation has. No other nation, no matter how great, has a God who is so near when, we, when they needed him as the Lord our God is to us. He answers us whenever we call for help. No other nation, no matter how great, has laws so just as those that I have taught you today. Be on your guard. Make certain that you do not forget as long as you live what you've seen with your own eyes tell your children and your grandchildren about the day you stood in the presence of the lord your god at mount sinai when he said to me assemble the people i want them to hear what i have to say so that they will learn to obey me as long as they live and so that they will teach their children to do the same Tell your children how you went and stood at the foot of the mountain, which was covered with thick clouds of dark smoke and fire blazing up to the sky. Tell them how the Lord spoke to you from the fire, how you heard him speaking, but you did not see him in any form at all. He told you what you must do to keep the covenant he made with you. You must obey the Ten Commandments, which he wrote on two stone tablets. The Lord told me to teach you all the laws that you are to obey in the land that you are about to invade and occupy. Warning against idolatry. 
When the Lord spoke to you from the fire on Mount Sinai, you did not see any form. For your own good, then, make certain that you do not sin by making for yourselves an idol in any form at all, whether man or woman, animal or bird, reptile or fish. Do not be tempted to worship and serve what you see in the sky, the sun, the moon, and the stars. The Lord your God has given all these to other people to offer them to worship. But you are the people he rescued from Egypt, that blazing furnace. He brought you out to make his own people. He brought you out to make you his own people, as you are today. Because of you, the Lord your God was angry with me and solemnly declared that I would not cross the Jordan River to enter the fertile land which he is giving you. I will die in this land and never cross the river. But you are about to go across and occupy the fertile land. Be certain that you do not forget the covenants that the Lord your God made with you. Obey his command not to make yourselves any kind of idol. Because the Lord your God is like a flaming fire. He tolerates no rivals. Even when you have been in the land a long time and have children and grandchildren, do not sin by making for yourselves an idol in any form at all. This is evil in the Lord's sight, and it will make him angry. I will call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that, if you disobey me, you will soon disappear from the, the land. You will not live a very long in the land across the Jordan that you are about to occupy. You will be completely destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among other nations, where only a few of you will survive. There you will serve gods that made by human hands, gods of wood and stone, gods that cannot see or hear, eat or smell. There you will look for the Lord your God, and if you search for him with all your heart, you will find him. Where When you are in trouble and all those things happen to you, then you will finally turn to the Lord and obey him. He is a merciful God. He will not abandon you or destroy you. And he will not forget the covenant that he himself made with your ancestors. Search for the past, the time before you were born, all the way back to the time when God created human beings on the earth. Search the time, search the entire earth. Has anything as great as this ever happened before? Has anyone ever heard of anything like this? Have any people ever lived after hearing a God speak to them from a fire as you have? Has any God ever dared to go and take a people from another nation and make them his own, as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt? Before your very eyes, he used his great power and strength. He brought plagues and war, worked miracles and wonders, and caused terrifying things to happen. The Lord has shown you this to prove to you that he is alone, he is alone God and, and that there is no other. He let you hear his voice from heaven so that he could instruct you. And here on earth, he let you see his holy fire. And he spoke to you from it. Because he loved your ancestors, he chose you. And by his great power, he himself brought you out of Egypt. As you advanced, he drove out nations greater and more powerful than you. So that he might bring you in and give you their land. The land which still belongs to you. So remember today and never forget. The Lord is God in heaven and on earth. There is no other God. Obey all his laws that I have given you today, and all will go well with you and your descendants.
you will continue to live in this, the land that the Lord your God is giving you to be yours forever. Cities of refuge east of the Jordan. Then Moses set aside three cities east of the Jordan River to which a man could escape and be safe if he had accidentally killed someone who had not been his enemy. He could escape to one of these cities and not be put to death. For the tribe of Ribon, there was a city of Bezer on the desert plateau. For the tribe of God, there was Ramahoth in the territory of Gilead. And for the tribe of Manasseh, there was Golan in the territory of Bashan. Introduction to the giving of God's law. Moses gave God's laws and teachings to the people of Israel. It was after they had come out of Egypt and were in the valley east of the Jordan River, opposite the town of Bethbeor, that they gave that he gave the law them these laws. This was in the territory that had belonged to King Sihon of the Amorites, who had ruled the town of Heshbon. Moses and the people of Israel defeated him when they came out of Egypt. They occupied his land and the king and the land of the king Ogog, Og of Bashan. The other Amorite king who lived east of the Jordan. This land extended from the town of Aror on the edge of the Arnon River all the way north to the Mount to Mount Seron, that is Mount Harman. It also included all the region east of the Jordan River as far south as the Dead Sea and east of the foot to the foot of Mount Pisgah. The Ten Commandments. Moses called together all the people of Israel and said to them, People of Israel, listen to all the laws that I am giving you today. Learn them and be sure that you obey them. Mount, at Mount Sinai, the Lord our God made a covenant, not only with our fathers, but with all of us who are living today. There on the mountain, uh, the Lord spoke to you face to face from the fire. I stood between you and the Lord at that time to tell you what he said, because you were afraid of the fire and would not go up the mountain. The Lord said, I am the Lord your God, who rescued you from Egypt, where you were slaves. Worship no God but me. Do not make for yourselves images of anything in heaven or on earth or in water or under the earth. Do not bow down to any idol or worship it, for I am the Lord your God and I tolerate no rivals. I bring punishment on those who hate me and on their descendants down to the third and fourth generation. But I show my love to thousands of generations of those who love me and obey my laws. Do not use my name for evil purposes, for I, the Lord your God, will punish anyone who misuses my name. Observe the Sabbath and keep it holy, as I, the Lord your God, have commanded you. You have six days in which to do your work, but on the seventh day is a day of rest dedicated to me. On that day, no one else is to work, neither you, your children, your slaves, your animals, nor the foreigners who live in your country. Your slaves must rest just as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and I, the Lord your God, rescued you by, by my great power and strength. That is why I command you to observe the Sabbath. Respect your father and your mother, as I, the Lord your God, command you, so that all may go well with you, and so that you may live a long time in the land that I am giving you. Do not commit murder, 
do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not accuse anyone falsely, do not desire another man's wife, do not desire his house, his land, his slaves, his cattle, his donkeys, or anything else that he owns. These are the commandments the Lord gave to all of you when you were gathered at the mountain. When he spoke with a mighty voice from the fire and from the thick clouds, he gave these commandments and no others. Then he wrote them on two stone tablets and gave them to me. The People's Fear When the whole mountain was on fire and you heard the voice from the darkness, your leaders and the chiefs of your tribes came to me and said, the Lord our God showed us his greatness and his glory when we heard him speak from the fire. Today we, seen that we have seen that it is possible for people to continue to live, even though God has spoken to them. But why should we risk death again? That terrible fire will destroy us. We are sure to die if we hear the Lord our God speak again. Has any human being ever lived after hearing the living God speak from a fire? Go back, Moses, and listen to everything that the Lord our God says. Then return and tell us what he had said to you. We will listen and obey. When the Lord heard this, he said to me, I have heard what these people said, and they are right. If only they would always feel this way. If only they would always honor me and obey my commands, so that everything would go well with them and their descendants forever. Go and tell them to return to their tents, but you, Moses, stay here with me, and I will give you all my laws and commands. Teach them to the people, so that I, they will, will obey them in the land that I am giving them. People of Israel, be sure that you do everything that the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not disobey any of his, any of his laws. Obey them all so that everything will go well with you and so that you will continue to live in the land that you are going to occupy. Okay, so as I mentioned, so we had the finishing off of the first homily by Moses. The second one, notice that he starts his homily off by talking about the geographical location again. Why does he do this? Because he's trying to show that you know, Moses received this, the Ten Commandments, right? The covenant uh, on Mount Sinai. Where was it? It was beyond the Jordan in the valley opposite Beth Peor, right? So he's showing that just how far they've, in a sense, fallen. Because on the mountain, they ascended on the mountain. and They were close with the Lord, right? And now you have that they're in a valley, okay? They're nowhere near God. And towards the end of chapter 5, you see Moses' role as mediator there. And you see them say, it's like, yeah, no, we, we don't, how, we were so blessed to be able to hear God, right? Now we don't want to risk dying and hearing him again. So Moses, you go listen to him, and then you can tell us what he says, right? And then what does God say? He says, like, would that they might have always be of such a mind to fear me and keep all my commandments. Then they and their descendants would prosper forever. You know, um, personally, in my faith experience, there's been many moments where it's just like, you know, I'm, I'm at mass and I see the Lord and I'm just like, wow, like I'm so unworthy. But, you know, other times and 
I'm outside of mass and I'm joking around with my friends. I'll cuss. I'll I'll be rude to people. And it's like if only I had kept that all. If only I had kept that love and appreciation for God at all times. And that doesn't just have to be in that sense, but also let's say you're struggling. Right? In that moment, if you've ever felt you've ever looked at the Eucharist and just known that everything's okay. God is truly present and he's got you, right? And you internalize that in that moment. Imagine if you could live your life always in a perpetual moment like that. No matter how bad life gets, no matter what happens, just having that realization that God is in control, you know? Having that realization that he's there with you. And that if you follow him, you keep his commandments and you have also that one is with you. So therefore you should try your best to follow him and you shouldn't stray away in any way. You'd be more mindful of your sins, no matter how small or how big. One, I think the one downside between, you know, having mortal and venial sins is like, okay, well, it's only venial, but it's still a sin. It's still bad. It still has a negative effect on your relationship with God. And in fact, venial sins make you more predisposed to commit mortal sins. So if you have, oh, I committed a sin. Oh, but it was just venial. No, that's bad. That's still bad. You should treat venial sins as you would any mortal sin. Fear, and as I mentioned yesterday, flee entirely from these venial sins. Try your best to Flee from sin at all costs, even, especially, no, not even, but especially the smallest of sins. And let these words of the Lord ring true in your ears, in your mind, in your heart, and internalize it. Would that they might always be of such a mind to fear me and to keep all my commandments, then they and their descendants would prosper forever. As I mentioned once before, St. Benedict's rule starts. The first rule, keep always the fear of God before your mind. Always. And what are we reading in the, in the book of wisdom or in the book of Proverbs? Right? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. But you got to understand, of course, this is not servile fear. Right? You're not scared of God because he's big and scary. But you're, you have this holy fear of God. You should have this holy fear of God always present before your minds. So you think before you act. That way, so everything you do, every act of your will is in accordance with the will of God. And that's why we pray that kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want to be able to follow the Lord perfectly, follow and keep his commandments. And how is the best way to do that? By keeping always the fear of the Lord in our minds very, very present. So it doesn't matter if you're going through a hard time or if you're scared of something that's going to happen or even if you're just sinning. If you have the fear of the Lord always in your mind, this holy fear, this awe-inspiring fear, this deep love, it ultimately comes from a place of love, of veneration, of worship. Having this always before your mind is not going to be a problem that's too big for you. 
no matter what the world throws at you. And there's not going to be a single vice that you'll struggle with, whether it be pride or lust or vanity or what you lost. God is in control. God is God. Look at all that he's done to the, for the Israelites, taking them out of Egypt, the countless miracles he's produced, and the countless times the manna rained down from heaven. How much more is the true body and blood of our Lord at Mass, the true manna? How much more should we truly be grateful at such a miracle? It's once we internalize these things and we realize and bring it into our life and live it that all our worries can dissipate. That we learn to trust deeply into, in the Lord's providence, in the Lord's love. And in that, you come more conformed to him, more conformed to Christ. And so it's a practical way of doing this. Well, You'd want to learn from somebody who, who's done this, who did this perfectly. And of course, the Blessed Mother. She was the perfect disciple. She is the only disciple that's ever been perfect, who followed Christ perfectly. And so it's, if you want to learn how to be a good disciple of Christ, how to always keep the fear of the Lord before your mind, you turn to the Blessed Mother. She's going to teach you how to do that. She's going to lead you to her son. But not just her, also... Her holy spouse, St. Joseph. They were both 30 years with Jesus. They knew exactly how to love him, how to follow him, how to worship him. And they will teach you just that. And you got to turn to them so that you may learn from them how to keep the fear of the Lord always before your mind. And in that, it didn't matter if Herod wanted Jesus' life. Mary had full faith and confidence in Joseph to take them to Egypt where they'll be safe. Mary had full confidence in the Lord that when Simeon gave the prophecy that a sword shall pierce her soul as well, she willingly accepted it. Her first words to the angel was, be it done unto me according to thy word. So we got to learn to have that true trust in the Lord, humble ourselves to trust in the Lord, to truly depend on him, and having that holy fear always present in our minds. If there are no questions, um, he may not feel free to read Proverbs. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but those who hate to be rebuked are stupid. The good obtain the good obtain favor from the Lord. But those who but those who devise evil he condemns. No one finds security by wickedness, but the root of the righteous will be never moved. A good wife is a crown of her husband, and she who brings shame is like the rightness of his bones. The thoughts of the righteous are just. The advice of the wicked is treacherous. The words of the wicked are are a deadly ambush, but the speech of the upright delivers them. The wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. One of the condemned for good sense, but the preserved 
mind is despised. Better to be despised and have a servant than a self-important lack of food. Lack of food. The righteous know the need of their animals, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. Those who till their land have been plenty of food, but those who follow worthless pursuits have no sense. The wicked covet the, the proceeds of the wickedness, but the root of the righteous bears fruit. The evil and ensnared by the transgression of their lips, but the righteous escape from troubles. From the fruit of the mouth, one is filled with good things, and the manual labor has its reward. Fools think over their own way and right, but the wise listen to the to advice. Fools shown their show their anger at once, but the prudent ignore an insult. However, whoever speaks the truth gives honest evidence. But a false witness speaks deceitfully. Rash words are the the sword trust. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. Trustful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue lasts only a moment. Deceit is, is in the mind of those who plan evil, but those who counsel peace have joy. No harm happens to the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. Lying lips are an abomination to, a Lord, to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are in his delight. One who is clever conceals knowledge, but the mind of the fool broadcasts fully. The hand of the diligent will rule, while the lazy will be put to forced labor. Anxiety weighs down the human heart, but a good word cheers it up. The righteous gives food advice, gives good advice to friends, but the way of the wicked leads astray. The lazy do not roast their game, but the diligent obtain precious wealth. And the path of the righteous is their life, and the walking is its path. There is no death. So I think the best thing to sum up what was read was in the path of justice, in the path of justice is life, but the way of abomination leads to death. And so you have a huge lengthy exhortation on different virtues to practice, right? Um, and really meditating upon this should really put into perspective how we lack so much. And you can find that the root of every single one of these virtues, whether it be gentleness, joy, generosity, chastity, temperance, diligence, all of them, their main root will be found in humility. And anger, envy, greed, lust, gluttony, sloth, all of the vices, their roots will be found in pride. So if you practice one vice, you're essentially going to be practicing all of them. But likewise, the good news is if you practice a virtue, you'll also be practicing all of them. And so that's how you grow in virtue. And by practicing it, you're given a choice every single day. Love God or hate him with sin. 
And in loving God, you're choosing virtue. In choosing sin, you're hating God and you're choosing vice. And so looking at the book of Proverbs, other wisdom literature, you're going to see a big theme is humility. This huge humility. And that's how you're to follow God humbly. Christ himself took the form of a slave. Philippians 2, 7. But he made himself with no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Think about that. The God of the universe, right? One who created everything. Who knows how wicked and sinful people are. Decided to inherit our wicked and sinful humanity. Of course, free from original sin and any sin. But the fact that he decided to enter into it. All out of love. But he did so humbly. Though he was in the form of God. He did not take it. As something to brag about. He did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in the human form. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross, which at the time was the most humiliating death ever. And Jesus practiced the virtues perfectly. He overcame every single vice perfectly through humility. In this Lenten season, the first um, first Sunday of Lent, we heard about the three temptations of Jesus and how he overcame every single one of them through humility. Think of it. It says, if you're hungry, turn this rock into bread. Man shall not live by bread alone, but in every word that comes from the mouth of God. The humility in that. True dependence. Humble dependence on God, knowing that he doesn't need the bread. Devil tells him, just bend a knee. Worship me. But again, he has that blind dependence, true dependence, the trust in God, humbly knowing that he only bends his knee for the Father. And then lastly, the devil tempts him by saying, you can have the whole world. You, come, you came to redeem the world, and I'll give you the whole world. You know, if you jump down now from the height of this temple, legions of angels can come to your aid. Do it. As he says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. In true humility, surely angels could have come and helped him if he had jumped off. But in his humility, he knew he didn't need to bring out his angels. You know, if he just was humble, he wouldn't have needed to. He would have contracted Satan. And think also on his way to Calvary. When one of his disciples struck one of the guards, he says, do you not know that I could call 12 legions of angels to, at, to come at my side? He could have stopped the passion at any time that he wanted to. But in that humility, he didn't. And so on the cross, what Jesus teaches us in the Beatitudes, right? These paradoxical promises, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, so on and so forth. He showed us this perfect example of virtue through practicing all the Beatitudes on the cross. All in humility. So it's good that we see that, that we take notice of these things. Um, and again, always go back, reread this. And be open to the spirit moving in you. Where are you lacking? Are you slothful? Are you prideful? Are you lustful? Whatever it may be, the book of Proverbs is going to tell you how to live a good life. And keeping that in mind, it's essentially going to tell you how to live out these virtues, how to practice them. But if there are no further questions, T, you go, girl. What have All right. Well, of course, we have uh, yesterday, John chapter 10. Today, we have John chapter 11. These two kind of go together. We have, he's laying down his life, his final foreshadowing, right? So, yesterday, we saw there's this emphasis on the intimacy between Jesus and his followers. But, of course, still in a context of opposition. And we'll see that these next three chapters, so... Yesterday, John 10, today, 11, and tomorrow, 12. We'll see that word and deed go together. They proclaim the forthcoming of uh, Jesus' death, but not so much as a tragedy, of course, right? But as a victory. We know this, that Jesus voluntarily enters into death, and it has his power to overcome its hold on those he loves, right? So we saw that in chapter 10. It contains one of the only parables found in John, actually. So we meet um, a good shepherd, right? We saw this. He protects his sheep from intruders and imposters. We saw these two more I am sayings, right? They're embedded here in this Johannine parable. Jesus lays exclusive claim, right? This exclusive claim to open the way of salvation of his followers. There's this personal relationship that he enjoys with everyone that he shepherds, and this is founded on his bond with the Father. We'll see today in John chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus, right? And if you went to Mass on Sunday, you heard this gospel proclaimed, right? Very beautiful. So it, 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 it demonstrates the love and power of the Good Shepherd, right? And not only that, but it also foreshadows his death and crucifixion or death and resurrection right there's this a seventh sign here it precipitates the crucifixion of that one uh, who says i am the resurrection and the life so see that as we read we're going to read all of john 11 and then we'll go on here's the raising of lazarus now a man was ill lazarus from bethany the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Martha was the one who had anointed the Lord with perfumed oil and dried his feet with her hair. It was her brother, Lazarus, who was ill. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Master, the one you love is ill. When Jesus heard this, he said, This illness is not to end in death, but it is for glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was ill, he remained for two days in the place where he was. Then after this, 
he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were trying to stone you, and you want to go back there? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If one walks during the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks at night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. He said this and told them, Our friend Lazarus is asleep, but I am going to awaken him. So the disciples said to him, Master, if he is asleep, he will be saved. But Jesus was talking about his death. Well, they thought he meant ordinary sleep. So then Jesus said to them clearly, Lazarus has died, and I am glad for you that I was not there, that you may believe. Let us go to him. So Thomas called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go to die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been dead, been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, only about two miles away. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. When Martha heard about that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary sat at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would have not died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise. Martha said to him, I know he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to them, Yes, Lord. I have come to believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who is coming into the world. When she said this, she went and called her sister Mary secretly, saying, The teacher is here and thus asking for you. As soon as she heard this, she rose quickly and went to him. For Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still where Martha had met him. So when the Jews, who were with her in the house comforting her, saw Mary get up quickly and go out, they followed her, presuming that she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her weeping, he began, um, he became pit, perturbed and deeply troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Sir, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not the one who opened the eyes of the blind man had done something so this man would not have died? So Jesus, perturbed again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay across it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the dead man's sister, said to him, Lord, by now there will be a stench. He has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you for hearing me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd here, I have said this, that they may believe you sent me. 
And when he said this, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, tied hand and foot with burial bands, and his face was wrapped in a cloth. So Jesus said to them, Untie him and let him go. Session of the Sanhedrin Now many of the Jews who had come to Mary and seen what he had done began to believe in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened and the Sanhedrin and said, What are we going to do? This man is performing many signs. If we leave him alone, all will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our land and our nation. But one of them, Caphesus, was a high priest that year and said to them, You know nothing, nor do you consider that it is better for you that one man should die instead of the people, so that the whole nation may not be may not perish. He did not say this on his own, but since he was a high priest was for that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, not only for the nation, but also to gather into one the dispersed children of God. So from that day on, they planned to kill him. So Jesus no longer walked about in a public among Jews, but he left for the region near the desert to a town to a town called Ephraim and there he remained with his disciples the last passover now the passover of the jews was near and many went up from the country to jerusalem before passover to purify themselves they looked for jesus and said to one another as they were in the temple area what do you think that he will not come to the feast for the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should inform them, so that they might arrest him. So, we saw that the discourse of chapter 10, and there's a sign of chapter 11, they share a very principal theme. And it's of the death and resurrections we talked about, right? There's this discourse here. It teaches us that Jesus, the Good Shepherd, he has the power to lay down his life and raise it up again at will. There's this sign. It it, it really concretizes the parable in real relationships with real people, right? So we see that Jesus he uses his power to raise the dead man Lazarus, and by this very action, it just accelerates even more his plans for his own death and of course consequently his resurrection as well so only as the good shepherd can jesus harbors these deep feelings for his sheep we saw this right this is this account of a death in a family that jesus loved dearly we see that we are introduced to three close friends of jesus mary martha and lazarus and mary and martha they we also see that they appear in Luke chapter 10. And that we're told more of their individual personalities and their respective uh, relationship with Jesus, right? Also, Jesus tells us um, in retrospect here that Mary was the one who anointed Jesus with perfume. Oh, Lazarus is only seen in 
John uh, chapter 11 and 12, we'll see him tomorrow as well. But although um, that same name, it's used in a parable of Luke chapter 16, we might remember that, uh, when he becomes seriously sick and his sister sends word to Jesus, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. We see this here. There's this because Lazarus is described as the one whom Jesus loved in verses 3, 5, 36, right? A lot of um, interpreters, a few, they have speculated that Lazarus was the beloved disciple behind the fourth um, gospel. Very interesting here. But um, that evidence, of course, is inconclusive. We know that's um, not actually correct. We see that, though, uh, continuing, we see responding to the news that of Lazarus' condition, we see that Jesus assures the woman that it is not the Father's purpose that Lazarus die, right? But God's glory might be seen still in his son. We see that he tells them this. And so still Lazarus does die, but his death, of course, it does not close the story. There's this tension here. It builds. Jesus deliberately waits before making a trip to Nazareth's home. Uh, so while he waits, Lazarus dies. Um, we see that this delay, actually, Jesus lays down alive. He, he's not avoiding death here. He confronts it with its finality to conquer it. We see the glory of Jesus that he spoke of. It's ultimately seen through death. So we see that when Jesus finally does go to Bethany, his disciples uh, counsel against it because there's this hostile religious authorities, right? We know this. So Jesus responds, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Those who walk during the day do not stumble, because they see the light of this world. But those who walk at night stumble, because the light is not in them. So with a lot of Jesus' statements, uh, this can be read, of course, on more than one level. We see, firstly, Jesus is saying that he must carry out his, his ministry, but he still has the opportunity, right? His time is limited. We know this. But also on a deeper level, he's speaking of himself as a light. Of course, those who walk with the light of Jesus' revelation, they will be led through life without stumbling. Those who choose not to walk in Jesus will stumble. And there's this other double meaning. It occurs in uh, verse 11. Uh, the disciples are told to uh, told that Lazarus has fallen asleep and Jesus must go wake him up. And we see that although sleep was a common euphemism for death, uh, the disciples, they misunderstand this, right? In this context, we see that their response is absurd. They they reason that if Lazarus is allowed to sleep, he will recover. So this confusion, it allows Jesus to confirm Lazarus's death and the state, uh, and state the purpose behind Jesus' delay. So the resurrection of Lazarus, of course, it points to a specific spiritual truth. It would not have been communicated if Jesus just merely healed Lazarus before he died. Right now, it is time to visit the grave of Lazarus. We remember that there's always these deeper meanings. There's always a reason why Jesus does what he does and um, what his statements really mean, right? These different levels. And what do they point to, right? Then we see at this point we hear from a disciple who speaks 
only in the Gospel of John. Uh, we see that whenever Thomas speaks, we'll see him speak uh, in also in chapter 14 and 20. It's if whether these cards are making their pessimists or sincere, right? But they always represent a call to faith. See that Thomas tells the other disciples that they should go with Jesus, uh, that we might die with him. Like these words here, they express more than Thomas could realize. There's a spiritual level, right? Every believer must follow Jesus to death, to eternal life. So Jesus arrives, right? Lazarus has been in the tomb for days, for four days. These four days, they're important because the rabbis taught that the soul remains at the gravesite for three days, yearning to return to the body. So there's this hope for Lazarus' resurrection. It's past now. But Mary and Martha, they, of course, had faith in Jesus' ability to heal. But their hope uh, had, of course, given some way to regret. We see that both women told Jesus that if he had come earlier, Lazarus would have not had died. We see particularly that Martha's faith allowed her to accept that all was not over yet. Martha knows here that God will grant Jesus his desires for Lazarus, and she knows that Lazarus will be raised on the last day. See that she says this. And still, Jesus is going to give her even more hope, right? Jesus utters his fifth I am saying to her. He says, I am the resurrection, the life. Those believe in me, even though they will die, will live and live in me, will die. This affirms that Christ's life-giving work, it affects our life on two levels in two time frames. We see that in the future, Jesus will bring physical life again, but in the present, Jesus brings eternal life. So there's this fact that he is the resurrection and the life and does not merely offer resurrection in life. It shows that his saving work is very much integrated in his very being, right? And we know that those who believe in him, they're uniting with him. So now we're at the tomb, and there's all these mourners. They're present here. Jesus himself is moved. We see that um, his feelings are not clear, but... Presumably, he was disturbed at the other's pain and loss, of course, brought on by this uh, death, by the destructive powers of death, Lazarus' death. We see that God grieves with people in the face of death. And this very much human um, emotion, we see that Jesus cries, Jesus wept, just remembering that he is like us in every way but sin. He did experience this, right? So we're at the tomb. And Jesus orders the stone to be rolled away. And the Jewish burial practice, it was required several steps. Um, so him wanting the, stole, the stone to be rolled away, it brought some horror to the crowd. These steps, these Jewish burial steps, first, uh, the corpse, completely wrapped in linen, it would be laid down on a stone shelf or table in the tomb to decompose. Then, up to a year later, the mourners would re-enter the tomb, gather the bones, and deposit them in urns that were placed in cavities carved in the walls. 
So these several generations, they would share a tomb. So at this point, these four days, the body would have begun its decay and it would have been very repulsive and ritually impure to open the tomb. But of course, Jesus reminds Martha of the promise of seeing God's glory, and so they remove the stone. We know that Jesus prays to the Father for the sake of his audience. Right? We see this wording in John, verse 42. It suggests that Jesus was always in communication with his Father. And his words, they really show others that the Son is working in union with the Father. This miracle, it's told briefly. That just as the sheep respond to the voice of their good shepherd, Lazarus responds to the call of Jesus and walks out of the tomb. We see that he is released from the grave, uh, close at Jesus' command. Very clearly here, Christ has released humanity from all that, all that binds and oppresses, even the power of death. There's this reaction here to the resurrection of Lazarus, it's very mixed. We see that many of the Jews believed in Jesus because of what they witnessed, right? But also, we also see that when the Pharisees hear of the event, they call a council meeting to decide on how to finally stop Jesus, right? This council feared a mass movement to Jesus that would, of course, jeopardize not only their position, but the nation itself. So this opposition to Jesus, it's now political as well as religious, of course. Jesus was put to death in part by the forces of the Roman imperialism, right? So we see at this meeting, the high priest, Caphasus, uh, tells the council, it is expedient for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed. Oh, here. There's this irony in John. It's elevated to this status of prophecy. Right? Jesus will die for salvation of the nation. Although, Caphasus did not understand extent of the salvation Jesus would thereby bring, of course. right? So we see that his death, they would, it would be redemptive and unifying for all, both Gentile and Jew. We see this all the time. We've talked about this. So, of course, together, overall, we see that chapters 10 and 11, they proclaim that Jesus is Lord over death, suppressing the devotion of any other shepherd. We see that Jesus intimately loves every single one of his sheep. He voluntarily enters death with the power to overcome its hold on those who love, as we said. So this is dramatic foreshadowing of Jesus' death and resurrection. This makes the seventh sign um, a very, very fitting climax to this book of signs, uh, John chapter 1 to 12. See tomorrow that it shows that the saving, revealing work of Christ, it comes through his personal victory over death, right? So now there's the standing orders for Jesus' arrest. And so the time has come for Jesus to wind down his public ministry. And now he will appear in public within the week for his last Passover celebration. So we will see. So that is John chapter 
11 for today. If you have any questions, concerns, anything that came stood out to anyone, please feel free to um, jump in. But we can end in prayer. Yeah, for sure, Rochelle. Yeah, for sure, Rochelle.